0: Pages 873 and then over to 874 for Lord's Day 4 of the Heidelberg Catechism. We'll be reading together question and answer 9 through 11. But doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man is unable to do? No, God created man with the ability to keep the law. Man, however, at the instigation of the devil, in willful disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Question 10. Will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry with the sin we are born with, as well as our actual sins. God will punish them by a just judgment, both now and in eternity, having declared, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. Question 11. But isn't God also merciful? God is certainly merciful, but he is also just. His justice demands that sin... Committed against his supreme majesty, be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. Amen. That is the word of the Lord summarized to us in our confession of faith. Let's go to the Lord now and ask for the Holy Spirit's help. Almighty God, we ask that the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. I want to begin this message tonight. By speaking specifically to our covenant children. Because kids tonight. We are talking about the topic of eternal judgment. Eternal punishment. And that's one of the hardest topics in the entire Bible. It's hard because... It kind of hurts. It hurts our hearts to talk about this. Um, You've already heard tonight several Bible readings that show God's anger against sinners. We've already read several passages about that. And you're going to hear more about that in this sermon. And since that might feel very scary if you're listening in, I want you to hear up front that this teaching proves that you can trust God. It proves that you can trust God. He's a strong and mighty God. And He's a fair God. I bet you go through things all the time that seem very unfair. But God is perfectly fair. In the Bible, that, uh, that is referred to as His justice. He is a perfectly just and fair God. And because of this, He will not allow sin to go on and on without dealing with it. If he let that happen, he would not be a fair and a just God and you could not trust him. But what we find in the Bible is that he is able and willing to punish sin. And if he is able to do that, he is also mighty to save you. It's the same God. The same God who punishes sin is also able to, And completely mighty enough to save you from your sins. So remember tonight that if you've been baptized, the promises of the gospel belong to you, and you should believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then that means God's punishment has passed over you. It's passed over you. Jesus has taken that punishment for you. Okay? So I want our kids to hear that tonight. Because uh, the last thing that I want is for our children to walk away with just abject fear that is not godly fear of the lord there's a difference between being scared of god as we think of that word in our parlance and having godly reverence and fear for god so i want us to learn how to teach our children to fear god in that biblical way so if there's nothing else that you hear tonight i want you to hear that all right then now here's the uh here's the the grown-up introduction We're going to quote a great uh, reformed writer, the late, great J.I. Packer, a reformed Anglican minister and theologian. He wrote this 50 years ago. He said, the fact is that the subject of divine wrath has become taboo in modern society. And Christians, by and large, have accepted the taboo and conditioned themselves never to raise the matter. If that was 50 years ago, I think we can be pretty certain that it has only gotten worse. That we have conditioned ourselves to think of God's wrath and his anger against sin as a taboo subject. We don't touch it and we don't talk about it. And I think it's important for us to come to terms with that and let it convict us. Because if the Bible speaks about God's wrath frequently, which it does... And if we claim to love and believe what the Bible says, which we do, then we must embrace this teaching as the truth of God's word. Otherwise, we not only make ourselves out to be liars because there's whole swaths of scripture that we're embarrassed about, but also we end up far worse than just making ourselves out to be liars. We make God out to be a liar and we rob Christ of his victory, because what the Lord Jesus suffered was nothing less than the fury of God's wrath against sin. And so if we won't talk about the wrath of God, then it means that we won't talk about the gospel, that Jesus has willingly taken the wrath of God in the place of his people. And so tonight our reflections are meant to be simple and hopefully clear enough. Because I think if we just simply talk about the bare teaching of this doctrine, that will challenge us almost beyond what we can bear in our modern age. So we're going to look at this in three steps tonight. We're going to look at the catechism's teaching, and then the Old Testament's teaching, and then the New Testament's teaching. Very briefly for all of them, to show that both testaments are in harmony, and that our catechism is just summarizing what both testaments say. So first then, the catechism's teaching on this subject of eternal punishment. So far in the catechism, up to this point, and again, we're we're just in Lord's Day 4. So far up to this point, we have learned that God commands all people to love Him and to love our neighbors. But sin makes us unable to do that. Well, that's a big problem. God commands it, and we can't do it. And so question nine very flatly asks, doesn't God do us an injustice by requiring in his law what man is unable to do? Man here is the inclusive use of man by mankind. If God demands us to do what we are unable to do, isn't God unjust? So I want you to notice the realistic nature of this catechism. It asks the hard questions. In other words, God says, do this, but we can't do it. So why does he still demand it? And the very simple answer is this. God created man with the ability to keep the law. That's how it all began. We had the ability to do what he said, to love him with our whole selves and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now here again, we have another teaching that has to land on us. God's law and standards didn't change, we changed. God created man with the ability to keep the law. We're the ones who changed. His law did not change. I grew up here in town seeing on most days of my young life, the Broadway Fountain, and uh, and then I was gone for several years, and when I came back here a few years ago, it seemed as if that fountain had not changed at all. It really, hadn't changed. You know, it's it's still there. It still looks pretty much the same. But now, with that gap of so many years from my teenage years of living here to now coming back, I appreciate and recognize the beauty and the detail and the artistry that has gone into that fountain it's like something different to me now what changed the fountain didn't change it's made of bronze it's stuck right there in the cement it's not going anywhere i changed i developed i had you know new experiences new sensibilities and so i've now come back to this immovable thing and i'm the one who has changed And it is a similar dynamic when it comes to God's righteous requirements. God laid down those requirements when he created the world. His moral law has not changed. And it won't change. We changed. Humankind has changed from the original creation. We have become infected with sin. Corrupted through and through. Now then, the Catechism's teaching is that God is terribly angry about this. Our sins are treachery. We read about the great storylines of history about traitors. We all kind of feel the the fire in our bellies. A traitor is just kind of a nasty character for somebody to, to betray a friend or to betray their nation. And this is what we've done on the absolute grandest scale. We have betrayed our Lord and our master and our creator. And so though we may not feel the profound nature that our sins have caused this chasm between us and God, it doesn't really matter whether we feel it or not. Our sins are absolutely diabolical and disgusting. Our sins are the irrefutable evidence. That mankind has decided to listen to the word of the devil instead of to the word of the Lord. That's what happened in the garden. We've been doing it ever since. We're infected with the same sin. We've inherited it. Sin has damaged God's good world. It is in this world, this very same world that God created, that there are child slaves. It is in the same world that God created that there are rape victims. There are groups that are wiped out completely by engineered famines. There are families that are irreversibly changed by wars that they did not start and had nothing to do with. There are people who seem to live decent lives, but in their hearts they curse Christ and they think about him with hatred. Now then, only a joke of a God would shrug his shoulders at such a situation. A God made in our image would shrug his shoulders at such a situation. And so the catechism teaches us to say, God is certainly merciful, but he is also just. His justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. There it is. Eternal punishment. A punishment of both the body and the soul that goes on and on. And that is the kind of reality that ought to make our hearts tremble before the Lord. The catechism catechism teaches that God himself, in perfect justice, you see, not in a fit of rage the way that we sinful humans do it, not like a child just throwing a tantrum, but as the God of perfection, this God will punish unrepentant sinners forever and ever. And that is the key here. Is what we're talking about when we come to these lists in the scriptures, like in Revelation chapter 21's list of the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, and so forth. It is they who did not repent who will face the ongoing judgment of God. That's the teaching of the catechism. But can we back this up? What does the Bible say? Some are convinced that the Old Testament God might have been angry with sin. But Jesus somehow kind of sorts all of this out and that the the New Testament is really no longer concerned about this kind of thing. So we're going to test this. What does the Old Testament teach us on this topic? We read earlier from Isaiah 66. This is a prophetic vision of Judgment Day. It's actually more is going on there. It's it's a, a prophecy about the whole New Covenant age. It's one of the great passages about missions. We see all these nations, these Gentile nations who are now being converted, changed into priests and Levites. That's something only Jews were allowed to do and going out and preaching about the God of Abraham to the other nations. And then they all come to Mount Zion and worship together. Um, That's the whole new covenant period. That's the work of missions that's happening right now. But at the end of this new covenant period, there is this day appointed As the day of judgment. And Isaiah 66 gives us a glimpse of this. Especially in the final verse. Verse 24. The redeemed here at this point have been safely brought into the eternal presence of God. Into the kingdom of his holiness. Where he is their God and they are his people. And then we read in verse 24 what else they see. They go and they look out. The passage says. It says, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die. Their fire shall not be quenched. And they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. When it says here that the worm will not die, the worm is an image of corruption. You think of the little critters that show up in your, uh, your trash basket on a hot day when you put it out. It's corrupt, it's, it's, uh, it's turning rancid, it's rotting, it's corruption. What Isaiah saw in this image, this vision that he gave him, was that God punished the unrepentant wicked with a corruption that never ends. The worm doesn't die. That's the meaning of that image. Corruption that doesn't go away. Even in hell, in the lake of fire, you know, hell is, uh, is kind of a holding period. The, the end of all things when it comes to the unjust and to the unrighteous is this lake of fire imagery that we're going to get to in, in Revelation 21. Even there, the wicked never stop sinning, but their corruption never ends. And so they only ever increase in their debts towards God. They continue to sin. They continue to raise the fist in defiance of the God who made them. Isaiah also saw a fire that is not quenched. The fire is the unending holy wrath of God, as the great commentator Alec Motir put it. That's what the fire so often symbolizes in the scriptures. It's the holiness, the, the fiery judgment of God. And here in this Dreadful prophecy what Isaiah saw was a fire that is not quenched it never goes out and so the holy wrath of God in this eternal judgment never stops the fire and the flames begin when God arrives to enter into judgment but then those flames never end And so indeed, brothers and sisters, the Old Testament teaches here and in many other places that the one true and living God is a God of perfect justice. And far, far from turning a blind eye to sin, he will punish those who refuse to repent with an everlasting punishment. The worm will not die and the fire will not be quenched. What about the New Testament then? This is our final point tonight. What is the New Testament's teaching on this topic? It should be enough for us to say that Jesus himself was not ashamed of this frightening imagery in Isaiah 66, but quoted it when he described hell. In Mark chapter 9, verses 47 through 48, this is Jesus's own description of hell. And the reason why Jesus is not ashamed is that he is the one who will execute the judgment. (coughs) In Revelation chapter 19, we read about the great battle of Armageddon. And as you hear that phrase, I hope you will, as best you can, put aside all the science fiction corruptions of what that battle is going to be like. That, That battle, spoiler alert, is when all the enemies of God... A mass against the people of God, and Jesus shows up and he breathes and they're all dead. Now, there's, there's, no, there's no uncertainty involved with this. But the King of the Ages shows up and it is all over. And we read about this battle in various places as it shows up again and again in the book of Revelation. And there in chapter 19, Christ defeats his enemies, and then over the course of three chapters, there's the appearance of this lake of fire. A lake of fire. What is this place? Our reading tonight was from Revelation 21, verse 8, and it tells us. It says that their portion, meaning the unrepentant who have died in their sins, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Hear that word there, the portion of them. It's, it's a word that means uh, an inheritance. And so as frequently as the New Testament talks about the inheritance of God's people being a new heavens and a new earth, a material reality, a material existence. So this lake of fire, whatever it is literally, is a material place of unending judgment. It is a place, it is a material place of unending judgment. Both the righteous and the unrighteous are raised with bodies on the great day of the Lord. And it is with those bodies and souls that the unjust are cast into this lake of fire. John speaks of it as the second death. It is that final destination of the enemies of God and all the enemies of God. As Revelation shows us that into this lake go the, the beast, the false prophet, and the devil himself with all his angels. So it is the place that is set aside for all the totality of God's enemies. <clears throat> and here, <clears throat> all those who loved their sins are cast as well. Now, uh, brothers and sisters, the thought of having to die once is bad enough. But at least when that's done, it's done. This is the second death. And it is described as the ongoing experience of death and dying. This is the reality that Scripture puts before us. And it is truly awful in order to alarm us to the dreadful reality that we have committed treason against God. And what lies ahead for those who will not come to their senses, spiritually speaking, And turn to the Savior Jesus Christ is this second death. What the Bible unashamedly depicts as the absolutely righteous punishment from God. Loved ones in Christ, it was this furious anger that the Lord Jesus Christ faced on the cross. You say, how does that happen? He was only hanging there for a handful of hours. It happened because according to his divine nature, he took upon himself the eternal weight of God's wrath against sin. And he became a curse for us. As defiled as we are, signified by that, that worm, the corruption that will never die, so corrupt Jesus Christ became for us. To take our corruption away. And for our sakes. He underwent. The wrath of God. There are two kinds of. Um, maybe this isn't the best word. But there, there are two kinds of. Immature people. Uh, spiritually immature. Foolish according to the way. That the Proverbs talk about foolishness. There are two kinds of foolish. Responses to this teaching. One is. The person who has not dealt with the truth of God's anger against sin and so just doesn't believe it. Hasn't crossed their mind that this might be true. Especially in our day and age when it is so taboo. They're just not concerned about their state before God for whatever reason. And the use of this teaching is to make them very concerned that they might be driven to the Savior who is more than capable to save them from this destiny. Another kind of person is a believer who has a shallow view of Christ's death because they haven't considered what he endured. So tonight, brothers and sisters, may we put away both foolish responses. And may this hard teaching of God's eternal punishment shake our hearts into godly reverence. For this holy God, and not only shake us into reverence for him, but also grant to us a deep and lifelong abiding comfort in knowing that this same judge has already undergone the judgment. He's already undergone the judgment. That's why your salvation now and your justification now is so sweet. The verdict of the last day has already been pronounced. And for those who are in Christ Jesus, the verdict is innocent forever, saved forever. He's already undergone this dreadful judgment in your place. May that be a great comfort to us every day that we face temptation and every day that we come with a shallow view of the death of Christ. The day of the Lord is not to be your great fear, but your great hope. The day of salvation from the wrath of God and the entrance. <coughs> into the fullness of joy amen gracious and merciful father we ask that you would establish us in this faith and as we have heard the true teaching we nevertheless confess that it is a difficult teaching so grant to us the grace to inwardly digest the food you have given and to instruct our children in your knowledge and fear, until they and we together with them have reached complete maturity. These things we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen.